Have you seen the 2021 My OT Journey Planner? This is Dr. Robin Axelrod. This planner is a must for OT students and practitioners. Check it out at myotjourney.com. Welcome to Students in Charge. The students of Corbin Health and Rehab Group, or Charge Therapy, are here to bring you the latest research in the field of occupational therapy. Combining evidence-based practice with a fresh student perspective, they aim to promote best practice and competency within the field. Hope you're fully charged because it's time for the students in charge. Welcome back to Students in Charge. As you may know, Charge Therapy is a telehealth occupational therapy company that specializes in hand, upper extremity, ergonomics, and home modifications. In this podcast, we aim to bring you insight into the field of occupational therapy and other interdisciplinary professionals. My name is Megan, and I am here with my charge partners, Lauren, Rachel, and Haviva. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Aliza Ansier, who is a physical therapist and specializes in postpartum recovery and women's health and mindfulness. Hi, Aliza. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. Aliza, would you be able to start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure, yeah. Okay, so a um, little bit about myself. I am a wife and a mom to two very rambunctious children, um, and I have my degree in physical therapy. I treat pelvic floor um, and women's health through a combination of pelvic floor therapy, orthopedics, and sports medicine. And I've also done multiple personal and professional trainings in the area of mindfulness to become a mindfulness educator. And I'm actually currently taking advanced training in trauma-sensitive mindfulness. Um, let's see, I, I like being outside, nature, music, reading, staying active, all, all, those, all those kind of things. That's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that with us. And we are so interested to dive into more about what you do. So to begin to touch on the mindfulness aspect of your career, what inspired you to explore mindfulness? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, and I think it's a really good question, especially because mindfulness is such a hot topic nowadays. So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about my, my history with that. So I actually had a really difficult time after my second was born not right away, more around the time when my second was able to start expressing herself more, which happens pretty early with my children. And both of my kids, like I kind of mentioned, are very spirited, they have really big emotions. And it was really difficult for me to deal with both of them. And it just came to a point where I was just having a really hard time being around them. And of course that made me feel like such a bad mom. I don't wanna be around my own kids. And it also helped me realize that it was time for me to start looking inward a bit and making some changes. And what I realized is that one of the reasons it was so difficult for me to be present with my children's emotions is that I never really learned how to process my own emotions. I think many of us might fall into a similar boat with that. And something I I really believe in is that motherhood is a journey of self-awareness. 
for so many people, it's really the first time when we start thinking about our strengths and our weaknesses, our triggers, our emotional baggage, what self-care really means. And I, I realized that I just wasn't, it was a lot for me to process and I wasn't being the mother that I really dreamed of being. So I started doing a lot of my own inner work. And one of the things that made a really big difference for me personally was the idea of mindfulness and starting up a mindfulness practice and really, really becoming more aware of my emotions and how I, I process my emotions and how I'm connecting with people, how I'm being present in my own life. And I also realized, especially just from working with a lot of moms as a physical therapist, that I'm really not alone in feeling this way. A lot of moms fall into a similar category where they really might not be prepared for becoming a mother. There's this um, idea called matrescence, which is the process of becoming a mother. And it's interesting because when you think about when, when a child reaches puberty age, right? There's so much education. It's looked as a, at a, as a developmental passage. There's education about how the body changes, the emotion changes when they reach that stage. But when someone becomes a mother, we're pretty much handed the child and we're basically good luck, right? And there isn't that much support out there. There's starting to become a lot more, which is really, really nice, but there's not, as much support is what we really need. So because mindfulness was such a huge game changer for me, then I wanted to start bringing it to other mothers as well. Thank you so much for opening up about that and sharing your journey. Um, and for myself and for the other charge students here, I'm I can only imagine the pressure that you were feeling and the emotions that you were feeling during that time in your life. And, you know, I'm not a mom, but I can only imagine that when you're put into that, that position of being a mother that you're taking care of for you, it was more than one little one. And, you know, you can just more and more so forget to take care of yourself. And that is so important. And I think that you also place an emphasis on that. Um, and I also praise you for giving that uh, support to women that you wish you had had. So thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, you made a really good point about supporting ourselves is so important. I think a lot of times we, there's a lot of pressure out there of what does it mean to be a super mom? And a super right. mom always has her house clean and the kids are well-dressed and dinner is always ready on time with these super nutritious, meals <laughs> and you know uh, that sometimes can it, it's it's very difficult to live up to that standard does that even really exist right and I think there's so much pressure out there and there's so much mom guilt around that idea and we place more of an emphasis on what we accomplished more than what makes us feel fulfilled so I, I like that you brought up that idea of the importance of doing something that's supporting yourself absolutely Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Lane, you mentioned before about trauma-sensitive mindfulness. Could you further explain what that is and which populations would benefit from this? Yeah, for sure. It's a great question. So 
I firstly just want to define what we mean by trauma when we talk about trauma-sensitive mindfulness. Um, I'm not a trauma professional, so the way that I'm defining trauma might be different than how a trauma professional defines it. I'm just going to be explaining it within the context of what we mean when we talk about trauma-sensitive mindfulness. So with trauma-sensitive mindfulness, we're looking at trauma less about how we're defining the trauma or what might have actually occurred and more about just how the nervous system responded or is responding to what happened. So it can actually be helpful to think about trauma-sensitive mindfulness as not exclusively for someone who experienced trauma because people are defining trauma so differently. And thinking of, thinking of it more instead as someone who might have a dysregulated nervous system. So of course that can be someone who actually experienced how the actual definition of trauma might be, but that can even be someone who might have some type of medical condition that might make the nervous system more dysregulated or even an, an example might be during, during the height of COVID when moms had their kids home and they were trying to work, right? That can cause a lot of chronic stress and that person might, their nervous system might have become pretty dysregulated because of all that chronic stress. So someone like that might potentially benefit from what we would call a trauma-sensitive mindfulness, even if that person doesn't see themselves as specifically going through a trauma. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Right. And yeah. I'd never thought of it that way. Um, like you're going through so much stress that you don't even know that your nervous system is going through that, that trauma. So I think that's so interesting. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's really one of, one of the really nice concepts of trauma sensitive mindfulness is to try to give people that more, more awareness of what's going on in their nervous system, even just mindfulness in general. One of the things I did with, um, with the group I was working with was when they woke up in the morning and, a, and just a couple of times throughout the day, I would have them just mark off where they felt like their nervous system was. Did they feel really calm and relaxed? Did they feel like they're starting to, um, to get more dysregulated, right? Whether they're going into more of this hyper aroused fight or flight, or they're going into more of this freeze state, because so many times we might wake up feeling more dysregulated and not even realize that until we end up having some type of breakdown. So mindfulness in general really promotes this sense of just trying to be more attuned to what's happening in our nervous system. So, so some important concepts of trauma-sensitive mindfulness, um, and I'll go through each of them. One is choice, one is control, and then also intuition plays a really big part into that. And it's all under the framework of trying to create safety, safety within our nervous system and safety in our environment. So just to give an example, in many traditional mindfulness practices, right? Anyone who has done, or I would say more meditation practices, anyone who does, who's done meditations might sound really familiar where they start off and they say something like, sit in an upright position, close your eyes, deepen your breath. This is a pretty traditional, very fundamental practice for many, many meditation practices. 
something like this potentially might feel too constricting for someone with a dysregulated nervous system. Even the idea of the breath, for a lot of people, the breath is so fundamental to mindfulness and meditation and it's incredibly important. But what some people don't realize is that the breath is really heavily tied to our nervous system. And it's not always the best anchor, the, the best um, focus of attention when someone has a dysregulated nervous system. So instead in trauma-sensitive mindfulness or mindfulness with, for someone whose their nervous system is more dysregulated, we might say something like, <clears throat> I have to get on my meditation voice, right? <laughs> I so I invite you to find a position that's most comfortable for you. And that might be sitting, standing, or lying down. I invite you to either close your eyes or keep them open with a soft gaze. So it's offering choices to someone, which is really, really important because someone has to find what works for their nervous system. And maybe someone doesn't meditate well with their eyes closed and that's perfectly fine to keep them open. And then another important concept is the idea of control. So that's the ability to change up the meditation if it's not working or to even decide if it's even the right time to start practicing a meditation. So perhaps someone starts meditating for a couple minutes and then they start feeling dysregulated, right? You might, whether um, someone listening, you've experienced this or you've heard people talk about this, they sit down, they wanna try to do meditation practice and they just, they can't get into it. It feels very uncomfortable for them that could be a sign of dysregulation. So they might decide to now try the meditation with their eyes open, or they might decide to try to stand it, to try to try the meditation standing up instead of sitting down or to try a different position, or they might decide that they wanna take a break for a couple minutes, or maybe it's just not the right time for them to do the meditation at all. So that's the idea of having control over how they're doing the meditation. So it goes hand in hand with choice. That, and, and I think this is a kind of novel idea for some people. When I was working with someone and she was saying that she really wanted to spend some time after her kids went to sleep to just do some inner work, to do some reflection, think about her day. And she said that sometimes when she started doing those practices and for her, I think it was more journaling practices that it actually sometimes made her feel more overwhelmed. So we spoke about the idea, you know, firstly, is there a way to change up how you're doing it so your nervous system feels more comfortable? And if not, perhaps it's just not the right time to do it and that's okay. And I think that that was a pretty novel idea for her that it's okay to stop doing a practice if it doesn't feel right for you. Um, so this also goes into the idea of intuition, like what I was talking about. That's the idea of really listening to our nervous system and understanding what is making us feel more regulated or more dysregulated. And the person who really educates a lot on trauma-sensitive mindfulness, Dr. David Trelevin, he's the one I'm doing the class with, he talks a lot about this idea of the window of tolerance. And if we're in our window, or if we're outside our window. 
So trauma-sensitive mindfulness can help us to become more aware when we're going outside our window and how we can bring ourselves back in our window. And this can actually be pretty difficult for someone who experienced trauma because they might have difficulty trusting their intuition or trusting their body. Or maybe they don't feel safe in their body. And safety is really important when it comes to mindfulness and meditation. So of course, it's really helpful to have individualized care and seeing a professional. But, but that idea of intuition and control. And I'll just, I'll give you a personal example. I was doing an eight week mindfulness class. I, I was taking the class, not giving it um, in this specific class. And I happened to have a really difficult day with the kids. I was very, very dysregulated. And this was a, an evening class. And the teacher was running through a, a meditation practice. And I started trying to do it. And I just felt like it was making me much more dysregulated. My nervous system was not feeling comfortable with it. So I decided the best thing for me to do at that moment was to not practice the mindfulness or the meditation practice that he was running through. And afterwards, when we were talking about our experience doing it, I mentioned that and the teacher was completely on board with that decision. He said that that is true. Sometimes the best things that we can do for ourselves is to not practice meditation, to not practice mindfulness if we're feeling very dysregulated. And instead our goal is to just try to do something to bring us back into that window of tolerance. So yeah, those are some, just some ideas of trauma-sensitive mindfulness. Um, if you have any other questions about that, I, I welcome to, to answer them. Thank you so much. That was so informative. Um, and thank you for explaining those aspects of trauma-sensitive mindfulness with us, as it helps to us, for us to try to be more in tune with our emotions and feelings as well. Um, and I do think too that you mentioning um, the importance in knowing what makes us feel regulated versus dysregulated really helps give us insight into our emotions and feelings. Um, and so thank you for sharing all that information. Um, we're gonna tie things back now a little bit to the postpartum period. Um, and so we found an article that explored how the postpartum period can be a challenging experience for many women as they adjust to the physical and social changes after childbirth. Um, and it discussed in this article how mindfulness-based interventions have been developed for stress reduction in a variety of health contexts, including pregnancy. Um, and these interventions provide strategies that may help women and new mothers handle their physical, emotional, and relationship challenges of postpartum period and increase acceptance of postpartum physical changes and body image. So based off these findings, and I may have said that too quick, so let me know if you want me to go back and read any of it, but based on these findings, um, do they align with how you teach and promote mindfulness to combat that postpartum depression? So the, the, first, the first thing I would say is that I just do want to clarify that mindfulness isn't only for someone who's going through postpartum depression. I, it's helpful really for so, so many different types of people, not even moms, just so, so many starting from kids to all the way through older adults. Um, but if we're talking specifically about their motherhood period, then yes, mindfulness can be very helpful 
for sure. And I do, I do agree with what the article was saying in terms of helping um, all the different things that you, that you listed off there. So I, I would say also what's interesting that these have studies that show that people who have anxiety or depression, not, not even necessarily postpartum, just in general, they're much more concerned about the past or the future than they are grounded in the present. And the whole, like, concept, the whole concept of mindfulness is to ground us into the present moment. So mindfulness really can help someone get out of that negative cycles of their mind to notice when they're starting to have those cycles and spiral and how they can pull themselves gently back to the present moment. So it's definitely helpful. And like I mentioned, all those other things about how motherhood is a journey of self-awareness and starting to understand ourselves more. I think what mindfulness does really well is to help us with our self-awareness and help us understand what's going on in our inner world as well as our outer world. So mindfulness definitely is, um, is really, really helpful with that. Um, I would like to say though, of course, if someone's going through some type of depression to work with a qualified mental health therapist, um, and also to just understand with everything we're talking about with the trauma sensitive, that if someone really wants to start practicing mindfulness and they do have some type of diagnosis or some type of history of trauma, then to just, to just know, to have the understanding that mindfulness, well, I guess I'll put it, I'll put it this way. So Dr. David Trelevin, he says mindfulness could be a double-edged sword for someone who has gone through trauma or will also open that up to someone who has a dysregulated nervous system, which very well could be someone who does have some type of depression. So it definitely is important to just understand that if someone is trying to practice mindfulness and they're having a hard time with it, number one, it could be that they just really might need to start practicing it in a way that's much more supportive to their nervous system. Um, because I know that there could be a lot of, because mindfulness is so popular now and everyone raves about how amazing it is, someone might feel bad if they can't really connect to it and they want to connect to it. So I think it's really important for them to realize that there's a lot more to it than just what they might read on some type of article or blog post. And another thing is just to understand that like I was kind of mentioning with the idea of trauma-sensitive mindfulness, that mindfulness isn't always appropriate for someone who's going through something that's causing their nervous system to be more dysregulated. And that would be something that they could figure out while working with, with a professional to see, is mindfulness really the most appropriate thing for me in the moment, or is there other work that I could be doing first? And if it is appropriate, how can I do it in the most um, supportive way? So uh, did that answer your question? Yes, yes. beautifully, okay. beautifully. And I think it's important to mention that it's not just that population, that specific population of postpartum women, but it really can be anybody. Um, and so thank you for bringing light to that because I think that's an important point to, to mention. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they have things out there for kids. Older adults, mindfulness is so inclusive to any type of person. It's really, um, it's really great. And there are a lot of different opportunities out there for even specific groups of people. Um, if someone identifies with a certain type of um, 
um, population or, or just something, then a lot of times there's specific groups out there that could be tailored to them. Amazing, amazing. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, it's just so incredible how, you know, client-centered mindfulness is, which is something that I know for sure in OT, what we're all about, and I think in PT also, that it's just all about the individual. It's all about that client and knowing what works for them. So as you were mentioning earlier, that maybe closing your eyes or maybe writing a journal doesn't work for everybody, but you can still tailor mindfulness to fit every individual. I know in the past when I've been a part of mindfulness activities, I found it very stressful to close my eyes and do certain things. And then I would just immediately start thinking about all of my tests and all of my work that I had to do. So clearly that, that wasn't working for me. So it's amazing that you're able to gear it towards your client or educate other individuals about the way that it works for them and what's going on in their lives. And as you mentioned, certain things might be going on in people's lives where it's just too chaotic and too crazy. So for someone who has kids or not even kids, they have a busy work schedule, they're flying around, they're so busy, how can they implement mindfulness into their daily life so it doesn't become something that, oh, oh, shoot, I forgot to do it. Oh, man, haven't done this homework for mindfulness in, in two months. So how can someone who's running around implement mindfulness so it's not a burden? when their life is so chaotic and so crazy? That is a really great question. I really, really appreciate that a lot. Um, yes, and we don't want mindfulness to feel like a burden because then it, it's sort of against the point of it. Um, so I, I wanna answer that firstly by just defining mindfulness um, because there's, like I said, people talk about mindfulness all the time and a lot of times people, really might not be versed in what mindfulness actually is. So mindfulness itself is the idea of being grounded in the present moment in a non-judgmental and curious way. But there's also a difference between mindfulness and meditation. So mindfulness is more of informal practice. Mindfulness is the idea of, again, just being present. So for example, when I'm washing the dishes, when I'm playing with my kids, I'm right here in the moment. And we ground ourselves into the moment with our senses. So mindfulness is, an, is in essence a sensory experience, with, which is why a lot of people, when they talk about, when they go someplace that's beautiful and they're walking outside, they just feel so grounded because nature has a way of pulling our senses. We notice the colors, we notice the sounds, we feel the wind in our face. So mindfulness really is in essence, it's grounding us into the present by using our senses. And meditation is more formal practice of mindfulness. That's what most people think of when they think of mindfulness, that picture of someone sitting cross-legged and their eyes closed and you know their hands are in a certain position and they're breathing. That's a formal meditation practice. And again, like you mentioned, you don't actually have to be in that position, but it's the concept of having quiet moments to focus on a specific technique. So something that I think is really important is to understand the difference between the two. Because if someone really doesn't resonate with formal meditation practices, but they wanna start implementing more mindfulness into their lives, they can start doing more informal practices. And that's also can be really helpful for someone who's very busy. So when they are 
washing the dishes or folding the laundry or sitting and playing with their kids, they can turn that into a mindfulness practice by instead of having their mind all over the place, they could focus and ground themselves into the present moment. And the more that they practice, the more that it could just become habit for so many things that they're doing. And when it comes to formal meditation, I always, or even just in general with the informal meditation, but I really, really believe that people should not bite off more than they can chew when, when it comes to things like that. And even starting off for one minute in a supportive position, it doesn't even necessarily need to be, you know, if someone's really busy and even the idea of, okay, let me find a chair, let me turn on some meditation and let me that, even that could be overwhelming for someone who's really busy. But even if they can just stop for 30 seconds to a minute and just feel their feet grounded into the floor and just listen to the sounds around them, that can be a type of meditation mindfulness practice. And it's really building a new habit. It's working a new muscle. So it's important to start slow and then to just train as much consistently as as you can. But I do think, I mean, that's something I'm so working, working with a lot of moms. It's something I'm so really passionate about is really making it work within someone's life. So understanding what are their visions? What are their goals? If someone doesn't resonate with the idea of sitting and meditating for 30 minutes, then let's find another way that they can be more mindful that they resonate more with. So there definitely are ways to work it in, but again, we want to do it in a way that's someone, it resonates with someone and in a way that doesn't feel too overwhelming. Yes, yes, absolutely. And thank you for defining mindfulness because I think that that can get confusing with the whole like the term mindfulness and meditation and it all just kind of blurbs into one like when somebody thinks about that. Um, so thank you for kind of clearing that up for not only us, but for our listeners as well. Um, and then I just kind of want to touch on some things you said, like being in the moment, that mindfulness, just being in the moment, feeling grounded. I think that whether we're students, whether we're practitioners, literally anybody, we can all practice that because life, life can get really crazy. And I know for myself as a student, as an OT student um, in graduate school, um, you know, our days are really busy and thinking about implementing mindfulness a lot of people might think like okay well I don't have time to sit on the ground and cross my legs and meditate for 20 minutes but I think that you you made it seem less intimidating that you can just take a step back and just be in the moment whether you're with your family and you're just like I'm gonna be in the moment I'm not gonna think about I have x y and z going on in my life. I'm going to be right here right now and use my senses and just really be there or whether you're outside in nature and really feeling like grounded, feeling the grass on your feet, whatever it is, and really resonating in it and making it for you. Um, so, and I think that what, how we implement it, um, and you made it seem less intimidating to go about it. Um, and then another thing that you said is, biting off more than you can chew. I think that doing that in any aspect of life, whether it's with studying or homework or dieting or mindfulness or anything, um, working out, that 
never ends well. If you're like, okay, if you go from never working out to being like, I'm going to work out six days a week, that is just too overwhelming and it's not going to last. So I think that you mentioning, you know, do it for a minute, just really be present for a minute and then go from there and see where it takes you. Um, so I like how you kind of explained all that. So thank you so much. Yeah, sure. If I can just hop onto some of the things that you now said. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm definitely someone who tends to try to bite off more than I can chew. So I can really relate to that. Um, I actually, I took um, the, one, one of the most standard mindfulness classes is called MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction. So I took that and one of the things they say is make sure you have enough time. There's a lot of homework, an hour of, of different practices and homework a day. And I was like, Psh, I could do that, right? I could find an hour. And we had these 45 minute meditations and it was way too much for me to do. And I, I had a lot of self-judgment about that in the beginning because I thought that I could do it. You know, you could find 45 minutes. It's not a big deal. And it really took me a good number of weeks into the program to become okay with the fact of, you know, I'm just going to do what I can. And once I, once I had that mindset, it just cha completely changed everything and just made it feel so much more supportive. So I, I can really resonate with the people who try to bite off more than they can chew because that's more of my natural personality. But I know, I know through trial and error how important it really, really is to really just, just do even less than what you think you can do and just try to make it so supportive. And then another thing that you were talking about um, with the idea of being super busy, right? I mean, you're all students and, and you're so busy. I, I remember when I was a student also, I mean, you're so busy and so many people are crazy, crazy busy, whether you're a mom or a student or just have a lot of work. And something also that I, I like to tell when I, when I talk to busy moms, and this applies to busy people as well, is even with informal practices, you don't necessarily need to spend a whole time doing something. So I gave, I gave an example, you know, let's say someone is going on a walk. They can spend the first few minutes where they're really going to make that into a mindful walk. And for some people, a walk might be a time when they start processing things. Or if you're a student, right, you might do a lot of work while you're eating dinner, which I know ideally, we would love to just eat mindfully the whole time, but sometimes we really need to be practical about our time. So even if you can spend the first couple minutes to really be mindful about how you're eating and all the senses around the eating experience, and then you can spend the rest of the time studying. Or if you're in the shower, I know for me, shower is a time when I start planning things. I'm thinking about my day and you know what I need to do. And I don't know, it's just, it's a time when I plan a lot of stuff, but so instead of having the whole shower as a mindful shower, which can be really relaxing, I might spend maybe just a few minutes in the beginning, a few minutes at the end being mindful and the rest of the time, I'm just going to use that as a way to think about my day. So it's really, that's, I think something really important. Like I kind of mentioned before, it's not this all or nothing type of practice. You do what you can try to spend a few minutes but you also have to be realistic about what's going on in your life. So I appreciate you following up about that. Yes, of course. And I totally agree. 
with anything 45 minutes when you're talking about something it seems like nothing you're like oh my gosh I can I can absolutely do something for 45 minutes and it seems like nothing until you're actually doing it and when you get to that part of your day and you're like 45 minutes I could do so many things in 45 minutes I could do the laundry I could vacuum I could do this and this and this and like I don't have time so it's I completely agree with that and I'm a bite off more than you can chew kind of person too and I think a lot of us and our listeners can probably agree with that too. And then, you know, incorporating things into your routine. I think that ties back beautifully with both of our professions, OT and PT, and the client-centeredness of our professions and making things feasible, not only for ourselves, but for our, the people we're working with as well. Because if something isn't going to, you know, apply into somebody's daily life, what are, what are the odds of them doing it? very, very slim. And we know that for ourselves as well. So when we think about our clients, we have to apply that. So um, kind of taking um, a little bit of a turn, we have another question for you. How has being a physical therapist who specializes in women's health influenced your mindfulness business practice? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it just gives me more of a holistic understanding, both for just really understanding the person in front of me, the physical and emotional components, and then treatment-wise. Just like you were saying before, well, when it comes to physical therapy, I don't just give someone 20 exercises to do. We have a nice conversation about what's going on in their life and what they can actually handle and what's feasible for their life. And there's also such a huge mind-body connection. So there's really a lot of overlap between the two. So I, I, I think it just has helped me become more well-rounded because I do have that understanding of the physical and the, the emotional components of the person in front of me. So it's definitely been helpful. Great. And I think, you know, you mentioning that holistic understanding that it is that idea of connecting the mind, body and spirit together. Um, and that, you know, every client comes with a different story. And so it's really important to understand their background, understand what's meaningful to them so that then you can tailor treatment plans to what is meaningful to them. And I think too, it's just so wonderful that, you know, we can work interdisciplinary amongst OTs, PTs, you know, many other professions to sort of collaborate and, and be at the same common goal of trying to help these clients reach the same goal, essentially, um, even though we may be adding different technical and practical touches to it. So thank you for sharing about that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to move into another tidbit of research that we found. And this actually has to do with that interdisciplinary collaboration. So we found a few articles that examined the interdisciplinary collaboration factors that may influence inter interdisciplinary collaboration and consequently patient outcomes. So by implementing these interprofessional collaborations and learning to work together and respecting one another's perspectives in healthcare, multiple disciplines can work more effectively as a team to help improve those patient outcomes. Um, this article also mentioned that collaboration in healthcare has been shown to decrease morbidity and mortality rates, and also that teamwork has also been shown to provide benefits to healthcare providers, including reducing extra work and increasing job satisfaction. 
So based on these findings, do you find that there is um, importance in having collaboration with other professionals, such as occupational therapists? Yeah, that's such a great study. I personally am a huge believer in collaboration. I, I think it's so important, whether even, even within my own profession, even within physical therapists who might do something similar, and for sure within other disciplines as well. I think it's so important. I think we all have something to add to the table. We all have our unique, whether it's just the way we treat or just even our personalities. And I, I think it's so important, um, collaboration. So I definitely agree with that 100%. Awesome. And <laughs> in your clinic, um, who, who are you collaborating with? Like what other disciplines and interdisciplinary professionals are you collaborating with? So in, in the hospital where, where I work, there's physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech therapists. They also happen to have even other um, disciplines there, uh, mental health therapists, um, because it's, it's an it's a outpatient hospital rehab type of setting. Um, so I've definitely collaborated. Um, well, I would say the most I've collaborated with was the occupational therapist who specializes in lymphedema um, because just a lot of my post-surgical patients, I would have her come and just help assess for compression wraps for those patients that, that would benefit from it. So definitely a lot of collaboration there. But just in general, in the, in the public health world, I'm, I'm, I'm solo with that right now. So I'm not collabor I, I don't have anyone that I'm working with. I, I do my, I have my own, my own thing. But it's, it's actually really nice that it's becoming more popular for OTs to work in the public health field. And something I think what's a really nice thing that occupational therapists add is that a lot of them have a background in sensory, sensory regulation and nervous system regulation. And that is so important when it comes to public health. So I, I think that it's a really nice component that they just might have more affinity towards or more knowledge about that they add to it. It's also, it's really interesting to me because I mean, it's just very cool to see that occupational therapists can be very versatile in what they do. I think because of that sensory work and because of even some mental health work, I actually interviewed an OT who her, her big thing was educating women on their menstrual cycle and how to help women connect with the cycles of their body. And it was just, it was just really cool stuff. So I, I think it's, really nice how versatile also other disciplines can be as well and what they can add to the table. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And it sounds like you have such a great team going on and that you have, you know, researched and studied such, such cool things. And I think that collaboration is ultimately so therapeutic for our clients and lends to that therapeutic process for our clients and just overall leads to that holistic and client, those client-centered results, um, you know, that for the clients that we're working with. Yeah, 100%. And then going back to, to your new business, how would you say that practicing mindfulness has impacted your daily life? Implementing these techniques as a mom and as a working woman and with all these things that that you have going on? Yeah, that's a great question. So 
It definitely helps me to feel more present. I'm a huge ruminator and my mind flies at like 5,000 miles an hour. So <laughs> I, I really, it, it, sometimes it's a big struggle for me. I'll 100% admit to that. Um, but it really helps to connect me back to my body, back to the present moment, helps me to just be more present with my family, other people I interact with, and appreciating just the beauty of the world. And then there's also that huge emotional benefit. Um, it, it helps me to notice my emotions and thoughts and let them pass by without, like I was talking before, getting into that negative cycle. For me, I think just it's, it's the nature of the world that we, we go through different stages of when things might feel more calm and relaxed and things might be more hectic. So my mindfulness practice definitely looks different in those stages the different things that I might focus on but it's it's just so helpful for that self-awareness and what what do I really need in the moment and how can I regulate myself more and how can I be present more what what supports me and again in, in a time when things are more calm and relaxed I might be doing a lot more meditation formal meditation or mindfulness practices and when things are more hectic and but the understanding of that and what's really supporting me, I think is just such an important concept in mindfulness. So it's definitely, definitely helped me a lot. And there's also, I mean, this is a whole other conversation, but just, I'll just mention it just super briefly. There's also a huge self-compassion aspect to mindfulness as well. That is important in general. You know, I think about it a lot in terms of mom guilt and mom shame, just because I, I work a lot with you know, in that population, but just in general, um, it's, it's so huge and important. So it's definitely, definitely been a life changer for me. Thank you so much for sharing all that and explaining how it has impacted your own life and really helped you to be more present with your own family and then taking that and helping out other individuals. It's really such an incredible thing that you saw a need, you, you ran with it, you are taking your own courses, you're helping other moms. It's really, really such an incredible and selfless thing. It is helping you at the same time, but, you know, just helping out the, the greater population. That's really amazing. And just as myself, as a, as a new mom, I am so excited to implement these new things, you know, whether it's when I'm doing the dishes, like you mentioned, or changing my baby's diaper, you know, ways to just be more present and to connect and just let the emotions of the day run their course and be able to be more present um, and helpful to my family and ultimately to myself. So I can be a better, happy, happier, positive person. That's really, really incredible. So we are heading towards the end now. So just to end off, do you have any final advice for our listeners regarding mindfulness or woman's health or any fun tidbit that you would like to share with our listeners? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of stuff there. Uh, okay, I guess I'll go for the advice. Um, I don't know if I have any fun tidbits at, at the moment. <laughs> um, so for advice, just for moms out there, the first thing I would say is just to know that you're not alone. It can feel really, really lonely, but a lot of moms are going through something similar and trying to find some support, whether it's just a community or a professional or just knowing that there's people out there who are going through something similar is really helpful. And another thing 
that I want to say that I mentioned briefly before is really the best things that we can do for our kids is to take care of ourselves. That in the end of the day, our kids don't really care if the house is sparkling clean and the laundry is folded, but they really want our parents who are there with them and they're present with them and can hold their emotions in a compassionate way. And the best way for us to do that is to model that for ourselves and to be present in our own lives and hold our own emotions in a compassionate way and to bring fulfillment into our lives with different self-care type of ideas. So that's what I um, like to just leave you with some last last minute advice. That really is such a great spin on it that the kids, they don't care. They really just want happy, present parents. <laughs> that is such a great spin that, you know, the how they don't need the house to be sparkling. I really appreciated that. That's a great line. Yes, as did I. And everything that you said was so insightful and worded so beautifully. So we thank you and our listeners thank you as well. In closing, thank you so much, Eliza, for joining us for our podcast today. We hope our listeners appreciated learning about your story and learning more about mindfulness, women's health, and about the role of a physical therapist in this practice area. Eliza offers one-on-one coaching and group programs. She can be reached through her Facebook group, Meaningful Motherhood Community, on her Instagram page, at Your Meaningful Motherhood and via email, Aliza Ansier at yourmeaningfulmotherhood.com. Aliza Ansier is spelled A-L-I-Z-A-A-N-C-I-E-R at yourmeaningfulmotherhood.com. If you'd like to learn more about charge therapy, we can be found at our website, chargetherapy.com. Charge is spelled C-H-R-G, the word therapy.com. Or you can find us on our social media at Charge Therapy and Students in Charge for more tips and tricks. Charge Therapy provides ergonomic adjustments and home modifications through both telehealth and in-person platforms. Check us out and contact us if you'd like to learn more. Thank you all for listening. Have a great day.